This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is June Udone. And this is June Udone's The Spark, but it's different this time. I'm doing a series of interviews of people involved with containing the Wuhan COVID 19 virus that has afflicted America and indeed the the world. Uh, when I first arrived in uh, Midland or was thinking of coming here March 10th, there were two cases and now there's over 45,000 cases. This is not good. <laughs> but we're containing it. We've all been self-sheltering. Um, the governor has asked us, required us to do that. Um, maybe pushing eight weeks. And um, the idea is to bend the curve of new um, patients, new eruptions of the disease in patients. With me today is Dr. Olivia Watson. She's Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of MidMichigan Health. Thank you, Dr. Watson. I'm thrilled you make time for me and the audience on a very busy schedule day, I am most sure. Uh, tell me, for the audience that does not know, what is MidMichigan Health? Well, MidMichigan Health is a healthcare system that is located in Midland, Michigan. That's where the flagship hospital is. But we're actually seven medical centers and six acute care hospitals throughout the middle and northern part of Michigan. And what is your relationship with the University of Michigan Medical Center? We have an affiliation with Michigan Medicine Hospital System, and uh, it has uh, been present for uh, approximately five years, and it has been a great relationship where the goal of our partnership is to try to keep care as close to home as possible. And what makes this Wuhan a COVID-19 virus different from other viruses? Uh, I would say that it is different for a couple of reasons and in a couple of ways. The first is that uh, its name is the novel coronavirus and it is being called novel because it's brand new. So we have not seen this anywhere in the world before it appeared in Wuhan um, end of December of 2019. So COVID-19 is the acronym for CO is for Corona, VI is for virus, D is for the disease, and then the dash 19 is because that is the year that it first appeared in Wuhan, uh, China. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, so a good way to remember that as well. 
But this coronavirus um, comes from a family of viruses that typically cause the common cold. So we know a lot about coronaviruses, but we've never seen this specific one. So it's brand new. It has been very aggressive and very contagious. And that's why it has been so different. And when you decide on treatment, how much uh, laxative, uh, latitude do you have? I mean, do you have to get permission from this or that? Does it come out of discussion? Explain that to me. Well, typically when we have something like this appear with no past history or way to know how are we going to treat it, how are we going to prevent it in the future, we have to start looking at other things that we know. So we start with the known first. And again, we know how to treat viruses. We know how to manage the regular coronavirus. So you start there and then you explore and you continually learn based on learning more about the virus the longer, longer that it's present, okay? So we learned a lot from um, the experiences of physicians taking care of patients in China and South uh, Korea and Italy of what was working, what they were trying, what was working and what wasn't. And then we were looking at our own past um, protocols and treatments and studies done on other similar viruses to again, come up with ideas of what we might be able to try. Now the problem is, is again, since this is a brand new virus, there aren't any FDA approved treatments because nobody has done the testing to prove that anything works or doesn't work. So anything that we were trying was either uh, an off-label indication for say a medication like hydroxychloroquine based on its previous experience with treatments in other areas, or it was done through an official trial, okay? An actual patient study where we said, all right, we're going to take the, uh, an antiviral medication like remdesivir, and we're going to give it to so many uh, patients in group A and so many patients in group B and study those results to see if it makes sense to pursue further use in other patients as we move forward. So the FDA will grant something called emergency authorization for use of a medication for something that they believe has potential. And uh, they also will grant the ability for patient studies to take place in real time. And so those are the two ways that we were able to use medications or trial different types of therapies for patients. Do you have the latitude to make those choices or to the doctor who's supervising the case? Uh, now you have a hospitalist, so I don't know how that plays into the ICU. But where I'm, do you have to get permission from anybody to try anything? Yeah, so again, typically one of the first things that you have to do is look within your own system to say, what do our own internal pharmacies carry? Do they carry any of these medications? And if they don't, we have to make a decision as to should we be ordering them? 
Are there trials that we can participate in with other bigger universities or other bigger testing centers to partner with them to enter into their trials that have already started with some of our patients? And those types of decisions are made through different committees within the hospital system. So for instance, um, if we formed a sub team of clinical uh, physicians, which included hospitalists, intensive care physicians, myself as chief medical officer, and uh, pharmacy. We had um, oncologists that were involved in that discussion because they used some of the other medications uh, for some of their patients and had experience with using them in different scenarios. And so we came together studied what was known, what we had already seen taking place in China and uh, Europe, and then also talked to our partners at U of M because we knew they had a couple of trials already in progress. And then after putting all of that information together, our committee put together a handbook for our providers to use once we had to go through a voting process and, and go through the approval process we put together a booklet or a, a pamphlet handbook of all the potential things that we had access to that our physicians could tap into to use. But the interesting thing is, and one of the things that made this particular pandemic challenging to work with is we had to get comfortable with ambiguity. We had to get comfortable with chaos and needing to pivot in the moment when changing recommendations came forward. So I understand the hospital system has a twice a year emergency uh, preparation review and uh, practice. As a result of this, would you change or introduce other kinds of things into that uh, protocol, that process? Yes, you know, we have been faced with pandemics before. So uh, we had HIV in the late 80s and early 90s. We had the SARS virus, the H1N1 virus. The Ebola virus was probably the most recent that we had to prepare for, for and fortunately never had to deal with it um, in Michigan or in our own institutions. So there is a standard emergency preparedness protocol, and uh, that doesn't really change from year to year or from six-month uh, planning to six-month planning. But we did learn a lot of things about this virus and about how rapidly it spread, how contagious it was, and for the number of people that it had the opportunity to impact. And we learned a lot of things um, that we will do differently moving forward. And I would say the first is uh, we had no idea how quickly we could use up PPE. That's the personal protective equipment or the supplies to, to protect patients as well as employees while we're caring for COVID-19. Because every time you go into and out of a patient's room that has COVID-19, you have to change everything. Your, your mask, your face protection, your gown, your gloves. And so if you just left a patient's room and they now need help going to the bathroom or need water or need some other assistance, 
you have to put on a new set of personal protective equipment to go back into that room. So I think one of the first things that we learned is that we, we went through uh, much more supply-wise for PPE than we had originally anticipated. And on top of that, we had a shortage. So we had a shortage to start with um, based on the needs of all of the uh, changing personal protective equipment and the needs for the operating room and for the emergency room. And, pay, and our employees that were actually testing patients had to wear protective gear because to even put the swab into the nose and do the nasopharyngeal sample that generates some aerosolization of the droplets there? in the nose and sinus. And so just putting that tiny little brush up there and pulling it out generated virus. So we had to protect everybody in that process. All of that required PPE. But I think one of the biggest lessons learned is uh, we in the United States have to recognize that we are very dependent on China, not only for medical supplies, but for pharmaceuticals, for the medications, the drugs, the IV fluids, all of the other things that we need to take care of patients. And when they um, shut down, we no longer had access to that equipment or to those supplies for weeks. And so we've got to figure out how do we stay more prepared either with our own stock or with alternate store, uh, sources of getting those materials when we're in a pandemic and need them quickly. Interesting. So what you were saying, you thought you were prepared, but got unprepared. <laughs> and unprepared. then you had a China problem. And Correct. so I know some local people were, were making masks and things like that. Oh my God. Yes, it, it was wonderful to um, see not only the community support, but the way that people um, really had to troubleshoot in the moment and get innovative. Okay, so even we knew N95 respirator masks were in short supply. And rather than throwing each one of them away, we came up with uh, some novel ways to clean them so that they could be reused, disinfected and cleaned them using two different processes. One that was a vaporized hydrogen peroxide cleaning um, product. And the second was to use UV light to actually bake them, bake the masks and then follow it with UV light to, to blast them and kill any viral particles and both of those processes were successful and we've never done either of them before. So again, partnering with people in the community, we had people making masks, we had Dow and DuPont making us the hand sanitizer and disinfectants, we had um, dentists and massage therapists and veterinarians donating extra PPE, extra PPE that they didn't need so that that we could use them. So we were very fortunate to see um, our communi community step in and rise up to the challenge as well. If a doctor has a diagnosis for a patient, um, what is the range and how is it decided how fully that diagnosis will be given to the patient or the patient's family or loved ones? Um, I, I would say that um, our relationship with the patient is one of the most important things to help 
decide the information that we are going to uh, provide to the patient. And we would only provide it to their family if they, if the patient gives us permission to do that. Because of the HIPAA. Because of the HIPAA laws. Yes. yes. So, um, and I would say that in my experience of taking care of patients, the majority of the time, patients do want you to share information with their loved ones as well. But you do have to get permission first. And so it is very important to give balanced information to all of our patients, both about a diagnosis and about treatment opportunities. We need to talk about um, what are the options for treatment and what are the pros and cons or risks and benefits of each and every one of those. Uh, it's our responsibility to answer questions that patients ask to the fullest extent that we can. And I would say that in general, we, uh, we prefer to give as much information as the patient is willing to, to listen to and hear. And there are times where we're in conversations and they'll say, nope, just these are the three things I want to know and these are the three things I want you to tell me about. And so we'll typically start there and then see if more questions arise and more information needs to be disseminated. And I think, it, it, I think the, the most important thing is to say, we have to use uh, common sense, okay? So the conversation needs to be balanced, it needs to be honest, and it needs to have enough information to make decisions. And so let me give you an example. If I um, ask you, whether you would like to use an experimental medication, okay? Again, it's my job to tell you what might this medication do? What are the risks and the benefits? Has it been used before? What kind of success have you seen? But it's my job to make sure that as a physician that you have um, factual information to be able to make those decisions. Now, do I have to tell you about um, if you look at a package insert to see about risks and benefits of a medication and potential side effects, there might be a list of a thousand different side effects. Do I need to disclose every one of those to you or discuss every one of those with you? No. What, what we tend to focus on is what's most likely to happen for you, knowing you personally, and um, what would you be most concerned about or should you be most concerned about? Now, if you asked me to know every one of the thousand side effects, I would be happy to <laughs> and sit down and talk to you about that, but, but it's gotta be balanced and, and we have to use common sense in, in having those discussions. So Dr. Watson, um, let's go back to a question about what does a chief medical officer not do, but what are the responsibilities? Are you looking at risk? Are you looking at new? Are you making policy around certain areas? Give us not exactly a job description, but at least a clue. <laughs> no, it, it's a great question. And uh, I would say that first and foremost, uh, what I do is I am the liaison between the administrative side 
of a healthcare organization and the physicians. So I'm the voice of the physicians to the administrators and I'm the voice of the administrators to physicians. And that really helps to build relationships, especially in the day and age where we are, we have to all work together um, to be efficient, to take care of our patients, to take care of our uh, communities. We all have to work together and trust each other. Um, in general, I oversee quality, patient safety, risk management. Yes, I write policies, I approve policies, so policies are a big part of what I do. Um, I'm an orchestrator in many ways, so during the COVID crisis, if there were things that needed to be done in a relatively short period of time, I would put together a sub-team to address whatever it was that needed to be taken care of, whether it's a new PPE protocol or um, remdesivir uh, as an antiviral uh, agent, uh, could we get access to it? We would bring a small subgroup together, talk it through, talk about what was the best protocol, get approval from uh, the appropriate committees because internally we have uh, a pharmacy, it's called a P&T committee, so it's pharmacy and therapeutics. We have an IRB, which is an, inter, um, an internal review committee for if you're doing something that's considered experimental or off-label. And then we have an ethics committee. So some of the decisions that we were being uh, asked to give, uh, we took to our ethics committee to have them weigh in and give us opinions and support in one direction. So I helped to orchestrate and um, bring all of that together. And then probably one of the biggest roles that I played during this pandemic was communicating, making sure that everybody in our organization on a daily basis knew what was going on from the clinical side of things. And um, we had to put out daily bulletins. I was was uh, sending out constant emails to providers to try to help them to keep up to date with all of the changes that were coming from the CDC, from WHO, from our local community public health department, from the state public health department. Uh, sometimes there were mixed messages, so we had to decide if there was a mixed message, which one did we have to abide by? So sometimes I'd have to call our in-house attorney and get some legal opinions as to what the most appropriate direction was to go. And then once we made a decision, again, then we would communicate that out to everyone. So what is the role of risk in your, in your organization or in medicine? Everywhere, like someone asked me the other day, well, why, what would happen if we had done nothing and, and no self-sheltering, you know? So what would you say as an answer to that question? Uh, what I would say is that if we had not done uh, the stay in place sheltering, there would have been a different curve. So some of our early planning was based on the models that we saw coming from China and from Europe uh, about the surge in the patients. And the biggest problem was if you exceed the capacity of healthcare systems to be able to take care of their patients, there can be devastating ramifications 
like you don't have enough ventilators to take care of everybody that needs to be on a ventilator, or you don't have uh, enough resources to be able to support those patients when they're in the hospitals if you have no more beds and you have no more hallway space. So um, after learning what the surge of this virus could do and looking back historically at other pandemics and realizing that one of the strategies that did have proven value to flatten the curve so that the surge wasn't so high was social distancing. Okay, social distancing has scientific evidence behind it. And so the stay at home was an attempt to improve compliance with the social distancing. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything from uh, whether I agree with the politics behind it or not, because I think that that was probably one of the weaknesses that was exposed uh, by this pandemic is politics shouldn't be involved with a pandemic management, but unfortunately has been. But what we, what we know is that flattening that curve allowed us as a healthcare organization to be able to plan appropriately, get the resources in place that we didn't have initially. And then we've been able to take care of absolutely every patient that has come uh, into our facilities because of it. So one last question, have hospital acquired infections gone up as a result of this or down because you don't have other patients? Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good question. And we have been uh, monitoring that. And actually the hospital acquired infections have gone down and our readmissions into the hospital have gone down as well. <laughs> that's good news. That is good news. That is good news. So thank you, Dr. Watson. And uh, what the takeaway for me is very complex, new virus, had to get the self-sheltering in some form going, very innovative, you know, the N95 masks and how to clean them, still looking for answers, not yet known uh, much about this virus in terms of treatment or outcome, what suggestions of many. Um, it's important to always uh, uh, be open to, I think, having not only a good attitude, but to be comfortable with chaos. You talked Absolutely. about that. <laughs> yeah, you had to get day to day, you know, there's new kinds of things. And isn't that a recipe for life to get comfortable for chaos? Because Absolutely. sometimes we live that. Absolutely. And then I think the other important thing is that, especially with healthcare workers who want to take care of patients with passion, that um, when the challenge presents itself, we can rise together. And, and it really is um, important to note that the nurses and the physicians absolutely are heroes. The ones on the front lines taking care of patients, they are the heroes. But the tremendous support that we've gotten from our support areas also needs to be recognized because the housekeepers work around the clock to, to be sterilizing and disinfecting the rooms and all the things that we need to have safe. Um, the maintenance uh, people and anybody else who was asked to go home and work from home remotely because we didn't have the volumes of patients here and didn't need all of our employees here. They did other fantastic things at home to help, help us like track data, track who the patients were that were coming in to be tested, how many tests were we doing, how many positives that we had. That could all be done remotely. 
So um, groups of people coming together to support everybody was, was just uh, very um, amazing to watch. And uh, America, it's, just, America style. it's America, it's America. And then to be out in the community and have the outpouring of support from the community even dropping off food for the EDs and the intensive care units, uh, gestures like that were just incredible. So um, are we gonna have another pandemic in the future? Yes, likely we will. Will we be prepared? Absolutely. Will we be better prepared than we were for this one? Absolutely. And will we conquer it together? I, I say yes. I say yes, we will. Yes. You have to take on what life gives you <laughs> and exactly. confront it, contain it, and, you know, make That's it your exactly own. Right. In this case, diminish everything. Thank yeah. you again for making Thanks. time. It's always Thanks, joy. Julia. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.